As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos. As always, I'm Jess. I'm your host. A few things before we get started. Everything all across the United States, across the world, has been a little bit crazy. I will have some announcements at the end of the episode, so if you would like to hear them, listen through. After we're done with today's story, I'll go over those then. Today's episode is a doozy. (laughs) This is not going to be an episode for the faint of heart. This episode is going to go over pretty consistently accounts of abuse, sexual abuse, torture, sexual torture, murder, incest, and accounts of adults raping not only other adults, but children as well. If this bothers you, this is not going to be the episode for you. Feel free to listen to some of the previous episodes, or wait for a future one. So today, we're going to be talking about Fred and Rosemary West. I got my information from a variety of sources. I read the books... Serial Killers by Nigel Blundell, The Cromwell Street Murders by John Bennett, Fred and Rose by Howard Soons, Sounds, <laughs> Serial Killers by Brian Eines, and Mapping Murder by David Cantor. That last one I didn't find super useful, but There were some little tidbits that were interesting, but I'm probably not going to use anything from that for this episode. Podcasts, of course. I always use, or usually, 
use. There are some subjects that I tend to stay away from podcasts for, but serial killers, all killa, no filla, and murder and more did quite a good job on these, especially all killa, no filla. That one was a three parter and they did a really good job with the information as well as, of course, serial killers. That show always really digs deep. And then, of course, there's the cursory Google searching. Pretty much the first 10 pages of Google. I will say, there's a lot of discrepancy as far as timeline. When events took place. But overall, I'm shocked to say that Wikipedia did a good-ass job. They're pretty on point with everything, pretty consistent with their timelines, and as far as what events happened when and how they happened. So good job to everybody that's added to the Wikipedia pages for Fred and Rosemary West. And of course, I did most of my internet searches after listening to podcasts and reading a few books. Fred and Rosemary West somehow found their soulmates with each other. They were a perfect match for each other. But unfortunately, they were the worst kind of match. They were both sadistic, sadomasochistic, rapists, and murderers. Somehow, these two met, fed off of each other's dark and twisted fantasies, and made them come to light in a horrific way. They raped, sexually tortured, mutilated, and killed more than 12 women together. Some of them were their own children. So how does not one, but how do two people grow up to become serial rapists and murderers, let alone find each other? A lot of it has to do with their background, the way they were raised. Let's start with Fred. He is older than Rose, so we'll start with him his background, his childhood. Then, when we get to the point where he meets Rose, we'll talk about her childhood a bit. And it might help give some insight as to why these two were so fucked up. Also, warning, if you haven't listened to my show before, I do swear. And in this instance, in this case, I most likely will give bits of my opinion I will try to make it expressly clear when it is my opinion. <laughs> it it should be pretty clear, but you will, through the course of this episode, grow to hate Fred and Rosemary West. Also, with the kids being home, you might hear some stuff in the background. I'm sorry about that. I will try to edit out as much as possible, but I don't have as much time today to edit. I'll address all of this in the announcements at the end. But let's get right into this. Fred West. 
Frederick Walter Stephen West was born on September 29th of 1941 in Muchmarkle, Herefordshire. He was the first surviving child born to his parents Walter Stephen West and Daisy Hannah Hill. Before Fred was born, Daisy and Walter had a daughter, but she was born more than a month premature, and she didn't she didn't make it. She passed away before Fred was born. Her name was Violet, after his mother's sister. His family was poor. They were farm workers. They were pretty close-knit and very protective. His father was a big disciplinarian, and his mother was very overbearing and very overprotective. Fred was said to be the favorite child, most likely because he was the first surviving. Walter and Daisy did go on to have five more surviving children. In the course of these five more children, there were multiple miscarriages as well. In 1946, when Fred was just five years old, the family moved to Moorcourt Cottage at Moorcourt Farm. This is where Fred's father worked as a milking herdsman and harvest hand. There's there's a lot of debate when it comes to Fred's childhood. A lot of it is believed, but this is technically just rumor or hearsay. Overall, his early childhood was pretty normal. For a farmhand child, you know. Strict household. Taught to work hard. And this does carry into his adulthood. He's always considered to be pretty hardworking. However, the cottage that they lived in had no electricity. It was heated by a log fireplace. There weren't many rooms. Everybody tended to share rooms, share beds. Which is normal would have been very normal in the 1950s for a family, a poorer family, to be living in these conditions. Usually the children would share beds until they got to a certain age, and then they would be kind of secluded boys in one room, girls in another, whatever. However, it is said that many times Fred's mother would have him share a bed with her. And Fred does go on to claim that by the age of 12, his mother had introduced him to sex. She had begun having sex with him when he was 12. He also claims that his father did not help matters at all. He says that as a child, his father introduced him to the concepts of rape and bestiality. He says that his father would tell him, if you want it, take it. And then showed him what he meant with a female farmhand. He also showed him how to have sex with sheep and other farm animals. This is debated by their brother, Doug. Doug was a bit younger. This doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Oftentimes with abuse, child abuse, one or two children or multiple children are targeted for it, and the others 
are pretty much left alone. They may witness it, or they may have no idea what's going on. Then again, Fred is a compulsive liar. And that is evident throughout not only his teenage years, but his adult life as well. But the way future events unfold, it would make sense that he was sexually abused and was in a pretty fucked up home for all of this to just be okay, especially in his mind. Now at school, Fred, Fred had kind of a hard time. He was considered to be a mama's boy. He was a little weird. To, to the other classmates, that is. He was considered to be scruffy, not quite that intelligent, and always seemed kind of sleepy. He got into trouble pretty frequently. Now, he didn't do good in school at all. And when he was about eight years old, he did get in trouble for something. And his mother, Daisy, came down to the school and argued with the teacher in front of the class about his punishment. This didn't help. (laughs) This only earned Fred the title of mama's boy or mother's boy. He was bullied pretty frequently and remained almost illiterate throughout his school years. He ended up leaving school at the age of 15 in 1956. He worked as a laborer, a farmhand, with his dad. And him and his brother John started prowling for young girls. Main goal is to get girls, have sex, so you can brag about it. But for Fred, it was considerably different. He aggressively pestered women and girls. It didn't really matter their age or who they were, what their name was. His goal was just to have sex with them. He would take them into the field where he worked, have sex with them, and then that was it. It's not really known if all of these encounters were consensual or not. It is believed by many, many people that a majority of them were not necessarily consensual. Now, some of the girls that did sleep with him willingly would later say that his sexual performance was completely and totally unsatisfying. His primary objective was just to satisfy himself. This is what he had been taught. This does fit in with the narrative that his father taught him about this. When it comes to rape, you're not doing it to please another person, obviously. And when it comes to the way he was taught about this, it wasn't necessarily a power thing. It was, hey, if you think she's cute and she gives you a woody, go for it, whether she wants to or not. This is the kind of idea that he was taught when it came to sex. I mean, enough to where, hey, if you're aroused and there's no girl around for you to get it with, go for an animal. As he got older, this became a regular thing. Him and his brother John would frequently go out and pursue girls. Fred tended to go after young girls and girls that were with somebody. 
They were there with a boy, whether they were just a date or they were an actual girlfriend. He got into quite a few fights, but it said that he would never hit back. And his brother, John, frequently had to step in and kind of save his ass or he would have gotten the shit beat out of him. Probably should have let him. (laughs) But as you'll see, he does get the shit beat out of him multiple times later on as he gets older. And it never seems to help. He never seems to understand the difference between right and wrong and what's okay and what isn't. Shortly after his 17th birthday, he decided to celebrate by buying a motorcycle. This is all fine and good, but keep in mind the the overprotective mother. She agreed with one, one stipulation. If he ever got into an accident with it at all, crashed it at all, even if it was minor, he would have to sell it and get rid of it. Well, Fred obviously is not a very responsible person. He is when it comes to work. But when it comes to things that are considered to be fun, he's not at all responsible. He just thinks of what's going to be fun, what I'm going to do right now. Two months after he buys this motorcycle, he gets into an accident. He ends up hitting a girl that's on like a bicycle, like a pedal bike. She's fine. She walks away with minor bumps, bruises, scratches. He somehow veers off the road and hits a brick wall. This accident fucks him up pretty good. (laughs) This is the beginning stages of what we're going to see with his personality shift. Not that he wasn't already a dick, but he he became like a super dick after this. With this accident, he suffered a fractured skull, a broken arm, a broken nose, and a broken leg. He was unconscious or in a coma for a week. When he finally came out of it, he had to walk with leg braces for a few months. Now, later on, he does tell people that he had to get a metal plate put in his head because of the fractured skull. This isn't the case. (laughs) This is just him overplaying the accident, which he does do pretty frequently to try to impress girls and stuff like that for some fucking reason. Now, after this accident, he develops a bit of a fear of hospitals and people start to notice his personality shift a little bit. He doesn't have quite the control over his anger or frustrations like he did before. This is very normal when it comes to traumatic brain injuries. It is theorized that this did this did cause a bit of brain injury for him to where it would alter his personality. It is normal when somebody has a traumatic brain injury for them to have emotional instability, for them to not be able to control those things and have outbursts for up to the first year. That wasn't the case with Fred. It continued for way more than a year. So it's thought that it was a bit more severe than they initially thought. This was back in the 1950s. I mean, it's not like they were, what, 30 years away from telling people to do cocaine? So I think it's highly unlikely that they would have been able to diagnose a severe brain injury unless he was, like, drooling on the floor. 
Now, at the age of 19, just two years, two years after this accident, he gets another head injury. And this is his own damn fault. He decides to grope a girl on a fire escape on the second floor. She repeatedly tells him to stop and he will not quit. He keeps grabbing her butt, grabbing her boobs. So she turns around, hauls off, and punches him. He fucking deserved it. Well, he falls off the fire escape. He goes over the railing, hits the pavement below. Yeah, this is only the second story, so more times than not, you're going to get the wind knocked out of you, have some minor injuries, maybe a broken bone. But Fred seems to be top-heavy or something, because he lands on his head. Now, the years 1960 to 1962, that, like, two- to three-year period in there, is busy for Fred. Over the course of this time, he is in trouble frequently. In June of 1961, it's debated who this actually was, whether it was his sister Kitty, who was 13, or if it was just a village girl that was 13 that happened to know the family, it is widely believed that this was his sister, and it would explain quite a few things. So in 1961, in June, it is assumed Fred's 13-year-old sister Kitty told her mother that Fred had been raping her since the previous December and had gotten her pregnant. This infuriated Daisy, his mother, their mother, And she ended up calling the police. And Fred freely admitted that he had been molesting young girls since his early teens. And just simply asked, doesn't everybody do it? Doctors did examine the girl, found out that she was in fact pregnant. And he was tried on November 9th. Before the trial... He was released to go do whatever. His family kicked him out of the house. So he was no longer allowed to live there. He moved in with his aunt Violet, his mother's sister, and became kind of like a laborer. He worked with bricklaying and construction, and he seemed to quite enjoy this. While working as a laborer, he started stealing shit. Just random materials. And shortly after he had been arrested initially for the molestation of his sister, he was arrested again for stealing. And his excuse was just, well, everybody does it. All of my co-workers do it, so why can't I? I hate this kind of mentality, but... (laughs) He was found guilty, and he was fined 20 British pounds. Come November 9th, when he was officially tried for molesting his sister. Daisy, their mother, testified for him in his defense. A big reason for this is the family doctor, Dr. Brad Hardy, came up with this theory. The first part he had right. He theorized that Fred had brain damage from his accidents. Most likely very true. But then, he says that Fred most likely had epilepsy that could cause blackouts. 
and during these blackouts is when he molested his sister. Daisy, their mother, latched onto this theory and completely believed it, even though it is complete and total bullshit. There is no evidence whatsoever that with epilepsy, it can cause a blackout and now you're molesting kids. That's not, that's not how that works. But since their mother latched onto this, it's thought that she somehow convinced her daughter, her 13-year-old pregnant daughter that was being raped by her son to not testify. She was called up, but she refused to answer any questions. She wouldn't name the person who had sexually assaulted her. Nothing. Without her testimony, the case fell apart. They had to acquit him. There was nothing, there was no evidence other than the pregnancy, but without her testifying, they couldn't do anything. So he was let go. Now it is debated on, maybe his mother was jealous. Maybe because of that proposed sexual relationship, that could explain why he thought incest was perfectly fine. And it's also said that Fred's father, Walter, sexually abused and raped his daughters as well. This has never been corroborated, but this has also never been discounted either. Even the brother Douglas claims that no sexual assault was going on, no assault, no child abuse at all was going on. He was one of the youngest, and it's very likely that he just was not exposed to it. Or he could have possibly lied about it so that the horrible things that Fred would later do were kind of secluded to just him. That stigma wasn't as attached to him, but it's largely believed that it did happen. So he goes back to living with his Aunt Violet. By 1962, he does kind of reconcile with his mom and I think his brother John, but that's about it. The rest of the family is kind of like, mm-mm, nope. <laughs> In 1962, he meets the person that will become his first wife. And this is Catherine Rena Costello. They had first met in 1960, and he only dated her for a couple of months. She was from Scotland, and she had been in trouble a bit. She's only 16 at this time. And Fred is 19 when they meet. She has already been in trouble with the law from the age of 11 for theft and prostitution. Not a whole lot is known about her childhood or anything like that, but it's widely thought that most likely she was a victim of child sexual abuse at home as well. Like I said, she was from Scotland. They only dated for a few months. She started running out of money. And then she was getting kind of sick of Fred being so jealous all the time and constantly questioning her about stuff. So she moved back to Scotland. They would reunite two years later. Fred was 21 and she was 18. They met up. She was working as a waitress. That first night that they met up again, they did have sex in the back of Fred's van. 
Their previous relationship that lasted a few months, it was the same kind of thing. The first night they met, they did sleep together and continued a sexual relationship that was pretty rocky for that few months. When they meet up again, have sex in his van, she tells him that she is pregnant. She is pregnant with another man's child. And it's it's debated on whether this was an affair that resulted in pregnancy or if it was because she was prostituting again. It is thought that most likely she was prostituting again and did get pregnant by one of her clients. This one was a man of Pakistani descent. Sometimes he's just referred to as being of Asian descent and he's either a bus driver or a cab driver. (laughs) But either way, she's pregnant with another man's child. During this time, 1962 in England, racial tensions are pretty high. Her having a mixed child mixed with anything other than white would have been an issue. Fred decides, you know, it's all right. It'll be fine. I know how to perform abortions. Now, of course, 1962 England, abortion is illegal. (laughs) But they seem to weigh the options like would an abortion, an illegal abortion done by Fred, be better than raising a mixed child? They decide yes. So she agrees to let Fred perform this abortion on her. He says that he learned how to perform abortions while, quote, overseas. He had never fucking left England. Ever. So I don't know what (laughs) was going through his head, what he thought he was going to do. Maybe he was saying this to impress her, but what happens if she says yes, and then now you have to try to do this? Well, he attempts to. That's right. This lunatic is going to attempt to perform an abortion on his girlfriend. So, he picks a secluded spot in Dog Hill Woods in Ledbury. They ask a friend of Rena's named Margaret Clark to be the lookout. His choice of instrument is terrifying, to be honest. It's a 12-inch long metal pipe with what looked like a corkscrew on the end of it. It's not known if they were caught by police or if the abortion attempt just failed. It's not known how this didn't work, but it didn't. Rena remained pregnant, and the two of them decided that they were going to get married. Fred's family was not supportive of this. Fred's parents did not like Rena. They said she was trash. But specifically, they really didn't like her because she was Catholic. They thought the only reason Fred was wanting to marry Rena was because he had impregnated her. So they didn't tell his family that the baby was not his. Despite his parents, most in particular his mother, completely and totally disagreeing with this wedding They get married in secret. On November 17th of 1962, 21-year-old Fred and 18-year-old Rena secretly get married. 
Now, a big reason they waited a little bit was because at 21, Fred wouldn't have to get his parents' consent in order for him to get married. I do find this a little bit odd that he would have to have his parents sign for him to get married if he was under the age of 21. I thought most places it was 18. Once you're a legal adult, you can legally get married, especially since during this time in the 60s, it was normal to get married pretty early out of high school, you know. So I found that a little interesting. I don't know if maybe it was different in England, but I know here in the U.S., at least in the the mid to late 2000s, from my experience, you had to be 18 to get married without parental consent. And you could be as young as 14 and get married with consent, which I find crazy. So they get married and they only have two guests. Rena's friend, Margaret Clark, and Fred's brother, John. Fred and John have this weird kind of relationship. Those two were considered to be the closest out of Fred's siblings. Of course, with Fred's family not being very supportive of the two getting married, they they ended up moving. They moved back to Scotland, where Rena was from. And it went downhill from there. <laughs> Their relationship was pretty chaotic. But while in Scotland, Fred became an ice cream truck driver. So while in Scotland... Rena does give birth to Charmaine, the baby that had been attemptedly aborted. I don't know how to even phrase that. But Rena does give birth, and her family is not at all happy about the mixed race of this child. So, in order to avoid conflict, <laughs> they come up with this story that they tell Fred's family. They tell Fred's family that the baby that Rena was carrying, Fred's quote-unquote baby, died while she was giving birth. So they gave her this one. I'm going to let that sink in just, just for a minute. They told his family that their baby was stillborn, so the hospital gave them a replacement. Now, I know the 1960s were a little little funny, but I don't think that were, they were that funny. This is March of 1963. This is how they chose to explain a mixed-race child. They say that they adopted Charmaine. I'm sure I've seen the pictures, and she's a beautiful little girl. I mean, she is gorgeous. But after Charmaine was born, they move again. They move to Glasgow. Come July 1964, Charmaine's a little over a year old. Rena and Fred have another baby. Rena gives birth to Anna Marie, who is Fred's first biological child. And it says in multiple places that Rena gave birth at home. Some think that it might be because Fred was so afraid of hospitals. I don't really know. But a lot of people do go on to say that while these two girls, these two babies are young, Rena's struggling. She's, 
she's struggling as a mother to raise two children with Fred being a lunatic, basically, throughout their their marriage. Fred treated Charmaine especially really harsh. He was extremely strict with her and pretty abusive. It is said that he kept the two girls in the bottom of a bunk bed with bars fitted in the space in between the bunks, basically trapping them in a cage. They were only allowed out when he was at work. Now, while all this is going on, Fred is not only abusive to the kids, he's abusive to Rena as well. And he's extremely demanding of sex from her. I mean, when he asks for it, he expects it. It doesn't matter what Rena's doing. It doesn't matter if she's ironing clothes, cooking dinner, waking the girls up. It doesn't matter what she's doing. If he wants sex, he demands it right then and there. Now, it is said that even though they had this abusive relationship, she would shout back at him and she would hit him back. Since Rena was struggling, struggling to raise these two kids, she was also prostituting at this time as well to help make ends meet. They decided to hire a nanny. They hire a mutual friend of somebody else's. Their friend, Via McNeil, had a friend named Anne McFall. This Anne McFall was 16 years old, and she became the nanny for the West family. Now, Fred did later admit to having multiple affairs throughout his marriage with Rena. He even fathered an illegitimate child with a woman from Gorbels. Now, when Rena figured out that he was cheating quite a bit, she began an affair. She was like, fuck it. If you want to go around and sleep with people, then... I'm going to, too. Not that, I mean, prostituting, I think, was a different thing because it was kind of organized. It was a job. You were getting paid for it. So maybe they didn't see that as cheating. But she began an actual, like, relationship with another man. And this was John McLaughlin. When it comes to John McLaughlin, I'm not sure what kind of a person he was. As far as, like, if he was a good person and genuinely cared, or if he was just a dick. I have no idea, but Rena doesn't seem to attract the best men, or seem to go for the best men, I should say. Attract has nothing to do with it, but Fred figures out that she's cheating. And he catches them in an embrace. It said it's not known if they're, like, hugging, if they're kissing, or if they're full-on having sex. But he storms in and he punches Rena. In response, this guy, John McLaughlin, punched Fred. Fair enough. Fred stopped and pulled out a knife, acting like he was going to attack this John McLaughlin. Now he does slice at him and barely grazed his stomach. But John then proceeds to beat the shit out of Fred and gets him into a corner. <laughs> Fred did stop defending himself. He just kind of huddled in the corner in the fetal position and cried. 
which is quite the uh, image. Now, years later, this John McLaughlin does talk about this incident. He says, quote, He couldn't tackle a man, but he wasn't so slow in attacking women. Now, this guy, John and Rena, did continue their affair after this. John became increasingly worried about Rena. He would see bruises and black eyes on her. He knew that Fred was beating her. He tried to convince her to leave him. But every time he found bruises on Rena, he would go and beat the shit out of Fred. So again, this is obvious. He's not learning from his behavior that it's not okay. Another time, John saw Charmaine. She was just a toddler. She asked Fred for some ice cream from his ice cream truck. In response, Fred smacked her across the head and John again beat the shit out of him. He's not getting the point that you can't be beating women and children like this, even though he's getting the shit beat out of him every time he does it. Now, a lot of things do change in November of 1965. It is believed that this was a complete accident. But on November 4th of 1965, Fred accidentally hit and killed a small boy in Glasgow with his ice cream truck. Fred was cleared of any wrongdoing by the police, but the people in the town, they weren't having it. They didn't want him in there anymore. He wasn't going to make any money as a business, and he might get the shit beat out of him for killing a kid. So they decided to move. In December, he returned to Gloucester with Charmaine and Anna Marie, the two little girls. He rented a caravan or a trailer as we Americans call it, at the Timberland Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleave. Rena did later join him in February of 1966. And she brought two people with her, Isa McNeil and Anna McFall. All three of them moved into Fred's trailer. Now, both these girls, Isa McNeil and Anne McFall, Both came from very poor homes. They didn't have enough money. It is thought they were prostitutes as well. But shortly after the move, Fred started an affair with Anne McFall. And I know it's going to be confusing because there are so many names, so many relationships. Everybody's fucking everybody. It's... I will try to make it as clear as possible. But it's going to get confusing at points. So at this point, Fred is married to Rena. Fred is also having an affair with Anne McFall. And it's thought that he might be sleeping with the other woman, Issa McNeil, as well. He begins to exhibit dominance and control over all three of them. And he's said to be prone to violent mood swings. Rena... And Issa McNeil are said to kind of take the brunt of his fury, his anger. And he also attacked his stepdaughter, Charmaine, multiple times. 
He's also reported to have begun sexually abusing Charmaine by this point. Now, this is extremely worrisome because Charmaine, this is early 1966. Charmaine is only three years old at this point. So he's sexually abusing Rena's daughter openly because he doesn't see anything wrong with it. And he encourages Rena to prostitute again. He wants her to supplement their income. Now, Rena ends up getting sick of this. She's tired of the constant abuse, both verbal and physical. And she has continued this affair with this, this John guy. So when she's had enough, she calls John McLaughlin and asks him to come get her. Both her and Isaac McNeil try to leave. These girls set up this plan so that they can leave him. Now, there's an issue. Anne started having feelings for Fred. So it's thought that she was trying to maybe win him over a little bit. She tells him about Rena and Isa's plan to leave him with the children. He's not having it. He finds out where they're supposed to be meeting, and he confronts them. He grabs the girls, his daughters, well, his daughter and stepdaughter, the one he's been abusing, and Rena and Isa, Isa, whatever her name is, McNeil, they both leave with John. John McLaughlin did have help. He came with John Trotter. John Trotter is said to be Isa's, Isa's, whatever her name is, her boyfriend. They came and took Rena and Isa away. But the kids were stuck with him. They were stuck with Fred. Anne McFall had become infatuated with Fred. Fred, at some point, promised to marry her. She's the one that turned all this information over to Fred. Now, because of this, when Fred does confront them about leaving, he ends up getting into a fight with John McLaughlin. And he gets the shit beat out of him again. And then, this is the kind of person Fred is. He grabs Charmaine and uses her as a human Shield. John McLaughlin basically just kind of like punches around her. (laughs) And still, while Fred is holding on to poor Charmaine, poor three-year-old Charmaine, John is punching Fred in the face. It's an interesting visual. Ultimately, Rena and the other woman do end up leaving. They end up escaping. Fred keeps the two children and threatens to kill Rena if he ever sees her again. When we think of this, you, there's an extremely abusive husband. You already know he is being not only physically but sexually abusive towards your daughter, and you leave both of them with him. 
I obviously don't know Rena personally. I can't even imagine being in that situation. But I would think that no matter what, I would try to protect my children. Rena does frequently come back to England to visit Charmaine and Anne-Marie. Now, initially, even though she had left Fred, she tries to have a, a friendship, tries to maintain her friendship with Anne McFall. But after she figures out that Anne McFall is the reason why Fred found out and that the two of them have been having an affair, she has a bit of resentment towards her. On October 11th, in an act of resentment, Rena stole some belongings from Fred's trailer and went back to Glasgow. She was arrested the following month for theft and had to go to trial. Rena ended up being sentenced to three years of probation. Fred testified at the hearing and admitted that he and Anne were living together, but claimed that Anne McFall intended to return to Scotland very soon. He ended up moving Anne McFall to another trailer in the same trailer park. But, of course, this is in England, so it's caravan in another caravan park. Rena bounced back and forth between living with Fred and living in Glasgow, and Anne McFall was still having a relationship with Fred. She ended up sending her family letters between 1966 and 67, saying that she believed that this relationship with Fred would offer her a better life, and she wanted to persuade Fred to divorce Rena and marry her. Fred wasn't on board with this. (laughs) Early 1967, they find out that Anne McFall is pregnant. By July, she's 18 years old and eight months pregnant with Fred's baby. She vanishes. She was never reported missing. However, her dismembered remains were found buried at the edge of a cornfield between Muchmarkle and Kempley in June of 1994. Nobody knew where her or her baby were for almost 30 years. She had been dismembered. Many of her fingers and toes were missing from her body. It's thought that Fred may have possibly kept these things as keepsakes, as this is a common trend with a lot of his victims. Initially in the investigation in 1994, Fred denied that he had killed her, but did admit to it later on and said that he had stabbed her to death during an argument. This isn't really consistent. (laughs) She was found with her wrists bound using a dressing gown cord, and it's thought that she was possibly either strangled or suffocated. So back to 1967. A month after Anne McFall goes missing, Rena returned to live with Fred. Their relationship seemed to pick back up after this, 
they relocated to Lake House Caravan Park. But, as good as their relationship seemed to be going, she left the following year. Again, just deciding to leave her kids with him. Now, when Rena would leave during these times, and Fred didn't have a woman there to kind of care for his daughters... I'm saying his daughters, even though the one obviously isn't his. But you get what I'm trying to say. When he had these two girls by himself and he didn't have somebody there to help him take care of them, oftentimes he would release them into social services. He would just kind of use social services and foster care, basically, as a daycare. And then whenever he got a girlfriend or Rena came back, he would go and get them back out again. This is when Rosemary comes into the picture. This is in 1969. Rosemary is only 15 years old at this time. Fred? Fred is 27. Let's talk a little bit about Rosemary, her childhood and everything, what made her the person she is. And then we'll get to the insanity, which is the relationship between these two. So Rosemary was born in Northam, Devon, to parents William, a.k.a. Bill Lutz, and his wife Daisy Fuller. She was considered to be a difficult pregnancy, and she was the fifth of seven children born into a poor family. Now, a big thing here, Rosemary's mother suffered from depression. She was given electroshock therapy while she was pregnant. A lot of people say that she received electroshock therapy, or ECT, up until just a few days before she went into labor. A lot of people say that this treatment may have caused some prenatal injuries to her brain. Rosemary grew up moody and pretty precocious. She was prone to daydreaming and was terrible in school. She earned a nickname from her family called Dozy Rosie because she would sit and kind of just rock or rock her head back and forth. And it kind of... she. I hate to say it, but she seemed like she was... There was something very off with Rosemary. As a child, Rosemary's father sexually abused her. It's not known the exact age that it started, but it's thought that it was pretty early. Her parents did end up separating when she was a teenager. Her mom had enough of, again, her abusive, controlling, and sexually deviant father. She lived with her mother for a little bit, about six months, and then at the age of 16, she ended up moving back with her father. Her father, Bill, Bill Lutz, was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, who was prone to extreme violence, and he repeatedly sexually abused her, and her oldest sister, Patricia. It is believed that Bill started abusing her 
around the onset of puberty, possibly before. Now, on numerous occasions, she would creep into her younger brother's rooms and molest them. She also raped her brother Graham when he was 12. Come 1969, when she's 15 years old and meets Fred, she's been known to to be excessively promiscuous. This is a common, common thing with teens and children that have been sexually assaulted or sexually abused for a long period of time. They will act out sexually and they will find people to have sex with them so that they can feel what their interpretation of love is. Because this is how, specifically, those that have been molested or sexually assaulted by family members, they're manipulated into thinking that this is a show of love. Now, when she meets Fred, she's only 15 years old. She's still going through puberty. I mean, at 15, you're not really completely developed. Everything still is changing. Fred was reportedly fascinated by how her body was developing, seeing the changes in her naked body as she grew a little older. Now, Rose, through adolescence, her teenage years, and into living with Fred, would parade around the house either completely naked or semi-naked. Now, when she meets Fred, who is 27 years old, she was already out at the bus stop looking for somebody to have sex with, for somebody to sleep with. Now, initially, Rosemary thought Fred was homeless. She wasn't really interested in him. But... He claimed to be going the same way she was and hopped on the bus with her and chatted her up quite a bit and was very adamant on taking her out. After a while, she does agree and they start a relationship. However, this goes a little right off the bat. She ends up moving in with him in this trailer park and becomes a willing guardian, I guess you could say, or a child minder is how they say it there, to Charmaine and Anna Marie. She did note that they were a bit neglected and she initially treated them with care and affection because Fred gave her this big whole sob story that his wife had left him and now he's working hard and trying to take care of these two girls and he doesn't know what he's doing. Initially, she's all about playing mom to these two. In the early days of their relationship, Rose insists that Fred take the girls on these little trips to gather wildflowers and go sightseeing and stuff like that. Within weeks of meeting Fred, she left her job at the bread shop in order to become a nanny to Charmaine and Anna Marie. Fred said that he would give her money so that she could send it home to her parents to convince them that she was still getting paid at the bread shop. A few months later, 
Rose introduces Fred to her family. They were shocked at their daughter's choice of partner. Now, Rose's mother, Daisy Lutz, was not impressed with Fred's tales, I guess you could say. She correctly concluded that he was a pathological liar. And Bill Lutz, her father, the diagnosed schizophrenic, completely and totally disapproved of the relationship. He threatened Fred directly, promising to call social services if he continued to date his daughter. He did end up doing this later, and it is thought that a large reason Bill was so against this initially was because he was jealous somebody else was having sex with his daughter other than him. He had expressly told Rose that she was not allowed to date boys her age. So it's no wonder she went for somebody almost twice her age. Now, Rose's parents did completely forbid her from dating Fred. But she defied their wishes, and they ended up calling the Gloucester Social Services. They told him that their 15-year-old daughter was dating a much older man and that they had heard rumors that she had begun to engage in prostitution in his trailer or caravan. Rose was placed in a home for troubled teenagers and she was only allowed to leave under controlled conditions. When she was allowed to return home to visit her parents on the weekends, she almost always took the opportunity to go and visit Fred. When her 16th birthday rolled around, Rose left the home for troubled teenagers, returned to her parents. At this time, she would have gone to Fred's, but he was in jail during this time for theft and unpaid fines. It was only a 30-day sentence, but upon his release, Rose dipped She left her parents' house and moved into a Cheltenham flat with Fred. They did get the girls, Charmaine and Anne-Marie, from social services. And Bill, her father, was trying really hard to get these two apart. He called social services again. Rose ended up being examined by... A doctor. This is in February of 1970. This doctor confirmed that she was pregnant. As a result, Rose was again placed into care, but she was discharged on March 6th, less than a month, about a month later. On the understanding that she would terminate her pregnancy and return to her family. Rose instead went and lived with Fred. Now, her dad at this point, instead of trying to constantly get her taken out of there, he goes, you know what, fuck it. You're not ever welcome in this house again. Not sure if he really sticks to that in the future, but we'll talk about that in a little while. Now, three months later, they move. They move to a two-story house on Midland Road, in Gloucester. Rose gives birth to their first child, a daughter that they decided to name Heather Ann. This is on October 17th of 1970. 
Now, there is a bit of speculation when it comes to Heather. Some people think that Heather may have actually been Rose's father's child. Either is possible. It could have been Fred's. It could have been her father's. Throughout the course of her life, Rose is actively having sex with Fred and her own father for multiple periods of time. So two months after baby Heather is born, Fred ends up going to jail again for the theft of car tires. He ends up being in prison until June 24th of 1971. Now he's in jail for six and a half months at this time. Rose just turned 17. As a 17-year-old, she has a newborn and two other girls to look after. She's looking after three kids, playing mom to three children. She has to be stressed. I know, as a mom at 17, one child was stressful. One newborn was stressful. I could not, I could not imagine having to take care of two more children as well. Now, according to Anna Marie West later on, her and Charmaine were frequently subjected to criticism, beatings, and pretty outrageous punishments throughout the time that they lived with Rose. Although Anna Marie was generally submissive and would cry and things like that when she was physically or mentally abused, her sister, Charmaine, wouldn't. And it infuriated Rose because she wouldn't cry or display any sign of upset, grief, or sadness or fear or anything. This is kind of like the obvious point where we know that Rose has a thing for causing pain for other people. Now, Charmaine had been suffering for years with neglect abuse, sexual abuse. But Charmaine was still very hopeful that her mom would come back and get her. Charmaine would frequently tell Rose, quote, my real mummy wouldn't swear or shattered us in response to Rose belittling them and yelling at them. Now a childhood friend of Charmaine's, her name is Tracy Giles. She lived in the upper apartment above the West family. And she would later say that there was an incident where she entered the West's flat unannounced. This was kind of normal for her. She was, you know, Charmaine's little friend. She would just kind of wander in. But she stumbled into something that she would never forget. She went in and she saw Charmaine. She was standing up on a chair naked, gagged, with her hands bound behind her back with a belt. Rose stood by her with a big spoon, a big wooden spoon in her hand, and repeatedly hit her. This little girl, Tracy, Charmaine's friend, said that Charmaine was calm and seemed like she wasn't bothered by it. 
But Anna Marie was standing by the door and was just shocked. At some point, Charmaine did receive treatment at a hospital for severe puncture wounds to her left ankle. This was just explained away by Rose saying that Charmaine had a household accident. This was on the 28th of March, 1971. Unfortunately, just shortly before Fred's release from prison, Rose is believed to have murdered Charmaine. She is known to have taken Charmaine, Anna Marie, and Heather to go and visit Fred on June 15th. He got out June 24th. By the time he got out, Charmaine was dead. Rose told everybody that Charmaine's mother, Rena, came back and got her and took her back to Scotland. But this would only last so long because Rena was going to come looking for her kids at some point. Yes, in my opinion, she... I know she couldn't financially take care of them, but she decided to leave her two children, her two little girls, in the care of somebody she knew was not only sexually deviant, sexually abusive towards one of her children, but also just flat out beat them all the time. I don't understand how a parent can do this. But either way, Rose goes around telling everybody that Charmaine was with her mother. But when Fred gets out of jail, she has him help her dispose of Charmaine's body. He doesn't seem at all phased that she killed this little girl. It's thought around this time that the two of them bonded. He told her about murdering somebody. She told him about murdering Charmaine. They figured out that both of them were into the same things, which was rape and murder. Now, eventually, Rena comes looking for her kids. At some point in August of 1971, she comes looking. Rena's kind of freaking out at this point. She's not sure where Charmaine is. She knows Anna Marie is fine, but she hasn't heard anything about Charmaine. She wanted to confront Fred about this. And he is blowing it off like it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. He ends up taking Rena out to a bar, said, let's, let's go meet for drinks or something. Gets her drunk, shit face drunk, and then strangles her to death possibly in the back of his Ford Popular. When her body was discovered later, there was a short length of metal tubing found with her remains. There's an equal possibility here that she had been restrained and subjected to sexual assault prior to her murder. This was kind of Fred's M.O. Her body was extensively dismembered, placed into plastic bags, and buried close to a cluster of trees known as Yew-Tree Coppice at Letterbox Field. With Rena out of the way. Fred and Rose get married. 
On January 29th of 1972, Fred and Rose get married. The ceremony took place at Gloucester Register Office, the same place he had married Rena. He described himself as a bachelor on the marriage certificate, saying that he had never been married before. There were no family or friends invited. And several months later, Rose was pregnant with the couple's second child together. This is when they moved from Midland Road to what would become the notorious 25 Cromwell Street. Now I did decide to break this up into two episodes. I'm really sorry about that. However, I will be releasing the second part of this within the next couple of days. I'm hoping to actually have it out by tomorrow. I just know that with this already being over an hour long, I'm going to need a little more time to edit and everything as well, especially if I don't want this to just be a shit show. That being said, we will pick up after Fred and Rose get married, and it's going to get horrific after that. I mean, this is going to be traumatizing (laughs) for some people. We will pick that up in the next episode. Again, it's just going to be another day or so. I'm hoping to have it out tomorrow, so you're not going to have to wait too long. Now, announcements. Real quickly, I'm just going to go over a couple of things. We're all aware of this COVID-19 virus that's going around. I live in Ohio, and our governor, Governor Mike DeWine, he ordered all schools to be closed indefinitely, but at least until April 3rd. So both of my kids are home. (sighs) I'm going to lose it. (laughs) I love my children. I do. I do. But it is also being said that the kids might not go back to school physically go back to school this academic year. With that, both kids have to do their schoolwork online, and they're also going to have physical paperwork to do so that they don't have to repeat. I don't even know what the consequences of that are going to be. Then also, bars and restaurants are shut down here. I mean, we're not technically quarantined. I'm not freaking out about it. I know there are a lot of people that are. I mean, I'm relatively healthy. My kids are healthy. My husband's healthy. We don't really have anybody that's immunocompromised in our family, but we are careful. We do take precautions. We wash our hands regularly. We try not to touch our faces, which is hard for me. I always touch my face, but I'm also always using hand sanitizer and washing my hands I'm very careful while going out to stores and stuff not to try not to touch a bunch of shit. But then you all know I'm a smoker. I have my smoker's cough. The look on people's faces when I cleared my throat. Good Lord. You would think that I just punched a baby. (laughs) So all of this being said, the main reason I'm telling you all of this is because my schedule might be a little bit wonky, hence 
like right now. I'm splitting this up into two episodes, even though I normally wouldn't. I've never done a two-parter before. But everybody is home. And it's a, it's it's difficult because I do have a lot more than I need to do when it comes to the kids and everything being home. It's just extremely difficult for me to cram 12 hours of recording and then editing into one day today. So I do have to split this up into two. I apologize ahead of time, or not even ahead of time because this is after this. You're listening to this after this, but my editing isn't going to be quite as in-depth, quite as structured or sound exactly the same as it usually does, just because there's no feasible way I can do this and still get it out to you on time. I never thought I was going to make a two-part episode, honestly. Like, I debated on it with some things, like with the Salem Witch Trials and stuff like that. But I wanted to make it all one, and I did want to make this all one, but it's just not going to be possible and for me to have it up Tuesday. It's just not. This is going to be a very, very long episode, and it might be nice to have a little bit of a break between this bad but not to the point where it is completely horrific yet. And that's weird to say because there's already been, what, three murders? And then how many kids have been sexually assaulted in this case so far? It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's only going to get worse. So take a little bit. Get mentally prepared for this upcoming story about what's going to happen because, good lord, it's, I mean, saying it's a wild ride is so not even close. This is where we're going to get into more details of the sexual assaults, the murders, and it's going to freak some people out. (laughs) But I just wanted to say thank you for being understanding. Thank you for being supportive and for understanding that I had to split this up in two because there's just so much. We will pick this up hopefully tomorrow and we'll get into the nitty gritty and the horrifically disturbing make you just feel a little queasy details. Thanks so much for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.